0: Hey, beer fans. Welcome to Experimental Brewing with Denny and Drew. I'm Denny Kahn.
1: And I'm Drew Beecham. Together, we're the authors of Experimental Homebrewing, Bad Science and the Pursuit of Great Beer, and Simple Homebrewing, available at all your finest retailers. Now, between the two of us, we have over 40 years of homebrewing experience. I'm the guy known for weird beer and sessionable
0: ideas. No, <laughs> no, no, it's strange. It's strange. Uh, and I'm the guy known for questioning the conventional wisdom and checking it out.
1: All right, and on today's episode, we're doing something slightly different. Uh, as you know, we've been writing a column for BYO Magazine for, what, three years now? Four years?
0: Something, something like that.
1: Who knows? Time flies when you're writing. You're working. Um, <laughs> and periodically, I think about once a year, BYO brings us online for an online chat with readers of the magazine to ask a bunch of questions and get a bunch of things answered. So we decided, why not share that with you? So here we go.
0: They asked, we tried to answer. But before we uh, get into that, please listen to these messages from the people who make the show possible. This episode of the Experimental Brewing Podcast is brought to you by you, our listeners. Go to experimentalbrew.com to help support us. Click on the Patreon link to donate whatever amount you like to the podcast and our charities. Click on the Brew Your Own Magazine link to subscribe to BYO. Or click on the AHA link to join the American Homebrewers Association. Part of the proceeds from those will go to help support the podcast. And thanks for your support. Mechagrade Estate Malt is a craft malt house owned and operated by the Klon family on their beautiful Central Oregon high desert farm. Their eighth generation Oregon farming family grows and malts all of their own specialty grain, creating malts that are rare, remarkable, and bursting with flavor. Malt is the foundation of your beer, so why settle? The best beers deserve Mechagrade. For more information, please visit mechagrade.com. When I'm done brewing, I want to be done brewing, not waiting around for my wort to cool. With the Hydra, the Corny Pillar, and the other great chillers from Jaded, I can be done when I'm done. No more waiting 20 minutes for the wort to cool enough to add whirlpool hops. No more messing with cleaning and sanitizing counterflow or plate chillers. With the super-fast immersion chillers from Jaded, you can chill your wort in minutes without all the hassle. Jaded chillers aren't just works of art, they're the fastest, most effective chillers you can buy. Check them out at jadedbrewing.com. Yakima Chief Hops has the tools for your homebrew hop playbook. From classic favorites to the next exciting hop product out of the YCH R&D Lab. Partnering with growers and brewers to create a robust hop supply chain from propagation to pint, YCH is the source for exciting experimental hop varieties. Explore new flavors and aromas with HBC 586, which provides an immense fruit medley aroma including mango, citrus, and herbal notes. Get creative with HBC 630, overflowing with tropical citrus flavors that can only be described as fruity and fortified with sophisticated woody notes. Or discover new takes on your favorite recipes with HBC 638, brimming with citrus and tropical aromas with hints of sweet aromatic, herbal, and stone fruit. Learn more at yakimachief.com. Welcome back, everybody. Before we get into the brew your own chat, we got a couple announcements.
1: Yep. Just real quickly, if you haven't checked your podcast feed or the website, we released an episode of the Brew Files, which was all about us revisiting two of our favorite holiday beers. We talked about both of them in the past, and this was inspired by a listener question who said, hey, what about holiday beers? And so when Denny and I were chatting, I said, Denny, what about holiday beers? And what did you say?
0: I said, holiday beers?
1: No, you said Bourbon Vanilla Imperial Porter.
0: Oh, yeah. I said Bourbon Vanilla Imperial Porter.
1: (laughs) That's what she said.
0: And, and of course, we
1: had already covered Bourbon Vanilla Imperial Porter on Episode 1 of the Brew Files. And for me, if you ask me about holiday beers, what do I think? I think Falcon's Claws. Because what does every holiday need but the world's strongest lager in your mouth? (laughs) Um, and so to remind people about how to make that either denny's beer which can be ready in a hurry or my falcon's Claws, which is definitely not available in a hurry and you better get planning to brew it now in order to have it for next christmas so we just put both of those episodes together for a brief little replay and some commentary so that you can remember how to make those finest examples of holiday beers at least from us (laughs) that's right all right and don't forget that hey We just realized this the other day, but the next episode of this podcast, and actually when I say this podcast, I mean The Brew Files, the next episode of The Brew Files is going to be episode 300.
0: Now, that's not 300 episodes of The Brew Files. That's 300 episodes of both podcasts
1: combined. Exactly. 300 episodes of us talking. And (sighs) now we got to sit here and figure out, wait, what do we do to make 300 episodes go by in a memorable way? So, if you have ideas, let us know.
0: Yeah, I think we should, for number 300, I think we should not talk.
1: There you go. It will be a podcast that with silent interpretive dance.
0: <laughs> like, uh, yeah, talking about architecture is like dancing about beer. Is that it?
1: Pretty much. Now, <laughs> one other announcement that I thought we'd throw in here today, because, well, today's just a nice special day. As we're recording this, this is Monday, November the 21st, which gives you an idea of how fresh the bread is baked. Today is the 42nd birthday of Sierra Nevada pale ale, which was originally brewed on November 21st in 1980 by none other than Ken Grossman.
0: So, And that, and that was the first commercial batch of it, not, not the first time he'd brewed something like it.
1: Right. It was the, the first official Sierra Nevada pale ale, shall we say. Right. Yep. And you just got to – I mean, we just talked about Sierra Nevada pale ale a couple of episodes back. It's – just one of those beers you can set your watch to.
0: Yeah. It's it's perfect. It's consistent. It's always going to be the same. And, uh, you know, if, if you are looking for the example of an American pale ale, this is it.
1: Yeah, even though Martin Cornell calls it a uh, an
0: IPA. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he's wrong about that.
1: Eh. All right. Now, don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review in Apple Podcasts. You can click the AHA or BYO links on the website and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is
0: the Pongo Fund. It's uh, like a food bank for animals. Helps people who are having trouble getting their animals fed to get them some food. Uh, We're about at the end of November now, so you've got about a month until the end of December to get us a few bucks to pass along to the Pongo Fund. So don't hesitate. Go to experimentalbrew.com, click on the Patreon link, and uh, help us help the Pongo Fund.
1: There we go. And now on with the show.
0: Yeah. So sit back, relax, grab a beer unless you're driving, because right after these messages, we're going to have a chat from BYO and see if we were able to give these guys any good answers. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. This holiday season, give back to the brewing community when you join the American Homebrewers Association. From November 8th through December 15th, purchase an annual membership and the American Homebrewers Association will make a $5 donation to your choice of Beer for Boobs, Soldiers Angels Hops for Heroes, or the Michael James Jackson Foundation for Brewing and Distilling. Learn more about these nonprofits and how to donate directly by visiting homebrewersassociation.org/experimental and let's give back together. Fall brewing is defined by fresh hops, beer fests and creative fermentations y Yeast's latest release Flannel Fest offers up two yeast strains and a wild and sour blend for your seasonal brews 2247 European Lager produces a clean, dry, and crisp profile often found in aggressively hopped lagers, while 2487 Hellebach Lager is known for creating the rich full-bodied and complex flavor profile of German beers Our exclusive 1997 Old Ale Blend will develop the favored pie cherry notes and sourness from Brett in an easy to use mixed culture. This option is ideal for those getting started with Brett and beer aging for darker beers. Head over to whyeastlab.com for our latest advice about brewing with these strains available now through the end of December. Visit store.yeastlab.com for new Y-East merch. Let's get brewing. just about time, it's just about time, don't you think it's about time, we talked about beer, okay, this is the part where everybody sings, beer, beer.
2: We are now live with the October BYO live video chat here. Uh, This month we have our Techniques columnist, uh, Drew Beecham here, and uh, Danny Kahn. Thank you guys for joining us. Certainly. Thank you. Um, My name is Dawson Raspuzzi. I'm the editor and also the reason we're starting about five minutes late here. Sorry, I had a few technical glitches. Um, But I I see we've got uh, about 40 people live, about 95 here signed up already, so... Um, there's eight questions in. I don't know if do you guys want to talk a little bit about backgrounds or do you want to jump right to questions? It looks like we have a pretty full house here.
1: Uh, I'm a nerd. He's a nerd. We're both nerds.
0: Yeah, we might, We can just go straight to questions. I think everybody knows who we are.
2: That's, that's why the big crowds are here, of course.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Poor people. <laughs>
2: All right. So, um, yeah, let's get started here. Uh, first, let me... I'll go my video. All right. First question. Uh, After the decision that the fermentation is done, you want to cold crash the beer. Is there a suggested temperature gradient or you just want to go as fast as your refrigerator can do? Are there different temperature gradients uh, for ales versus lagers? And um, is the operation a potential generator of off
0: flavors? You want to go first? Because I got this.
1: No, I'll let you go, and then I'll, I'll tell you where you're wrong.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, except that I won't be, so you won't, you won't have anything to say. Um, I have always just cold crashed as fast as I can go, usually from my my normal fermentation schedules to start off mid to lower 60s for, you know, four or five days, maybe seven, bump it up to maybe 70, 72 for a few days after that, To finish fermenting make sure everything is done and then cold crash it down to 35 degrees in one fell swoop that has always worked fine for me I do basically the same thing for ales and lagers although of course I start (laughs) lagers at a lower fermentation temperature Um, and you know I've never had any issues doing that but one day I got into a conversation with John Palmer about it and John says that you should lower the temp gradually because by crashing it, the yeast cells can release lipids that can interfere with uh, the foam in your beer. Um, This is where I get to use one of my favorite sayings that Drew has heard over and over again. You know what it is? Theory and reality. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. Reality often astonishes theory. And I find this over and over and over again in brewing. There are all kinds of theories about what you can do and why you should do it and all that kind of stuff. But basically what it comes down to is try it and see if it works. And the reality for me of cold crashing is going from 75 or 72, 75 straight down to 35 works well. Uh, If you're going to do the, Palmer thing, then probably you want to lower maybe like five degrees a day or something like that. Um, but, you know, I just I just don't see this, the need. I see somebody talking about cold crash and lagering at the same time. I do the same thing when I'm lagering. I just crash the temp down. Traditionally, they have you lower the temp gradually with lagering. Uh, My understanding is that's to keep the yeast active because you're, you know, not done with fermentation when you go into the lagering phase. Uh, But, you know, again, for both of those, I have not found the theory to be at at odds with my technique. I mean, you know, theoretically it is, but my technique works great. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying there, Eric, for ales. Yeah, right, but same, same deal. Um, you know, I just, I, I know the theory behind reducing the temperature gradually, and I know my results when I don't reduce the temperature gradually, so I do what's easy.
1: Yeah, and to your point, one, stop stealing from the Tablet Brothers. Uh, two, when I was first learning how to brew, uh, I got taught by a guy who, who his big thing was trying to clone Budweiser, right? And he did, it. he did it not because, you know, oh, hey, that was his favorite flavor in the universe. He did that because he thought it was the best challenge that he could do as a homebrew. And for him, he was absolutely resolute that the only way you could you could do lagering was to allow the beer to finish fermenting out, you know, at like 48, 50 degrees Fahrenheit. And then, you know, gradually lower it a degree a day. Uh, which is a very, very old school way of thinking. And, and yeah, his point was always like, oh, you know, the, the beer won't taste right. You'll get off flavors, everything else. Um, I tend to go halfway in between. Uh, I don't crash as aggressively as Denny does, uh, but I tend to go down about you know, probably about 10 degrees per day. Uh, now, granted, most of the time when I'm doing this, it's when I'm doing uh, a cream ale. And so my cream ale has already been up at about 60 degrees Fahrenheit and then starts coming down. So, you know, like day one, I put it down to 50, day two, I put it down to 40. And then, you know, by the end of that, it's there. Do I think it has any particular impact? Uh, it'd be hard for us to say it did. Yeah. Um, but it's what I do anyway. And nowadays, now that I can control from on my phone, I just program it in anyway. And it happens. Um, but yeah, to my mind... The biggest thing that you have to worry about cold crashing, at least at the homebrew scale, is not anything that you're dealing with the yeast. Uh has everything to do with whether or not you're sucking back fluid from your airlock.
0: So that's that's why I just seal the fermenter when I cold crash. Right. I know that that freaks people out, but once again I've never had an issue with it. So and that includes carboys and buckets. So
1: Yep. Okay. So that's that's the in question.
2: Okay. Let's see. Next question, Stephen Wade uh, asks, "When making a session IPA, it's really hard to not make it taste like a pale ale. If you're trying to make a session IPA, what is uh, your thinking when you're planning the recipe? What techniques would you use?" Um, and then he says, "I've tried mashing hotter to get a little more sweetness and body. I've also tried uh, cryo hops to make the hops shine and pop. Any other suggestions?"
1: Well, I would reason- start from I would start from the the initial part where I think it's a a bad assumption to say that a Session IPA is not a pale ale.
0: That's Uh, just what I was going to say, too. The reason it tastes like a pale ale is because that's what it is, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Session IPA, as far as I'm concerned, is just purely a marketing construct. Well, Uh, except for I
1: I, I will give it a place, uh, you know, in one way, which is that I think when somebody says a Session IPA as opposed to a pale ale, they're looking at like kind of that West coast IPA idea like the, not, not the old school with caramel malt in it, but the sort of the modern San Diego thing that's like all pale and pills and then, you know, drag that down and make it much more hop forward. Right. Um, so yeah, one, I do think that we're starting from a place of, it's really hard not to make a session IPA taste like a pale ale because it's really just about damn near a pale ale. (laughs) Um, so in the in the pieces that Stephen puts in here uh, in terms of his follow up, like, um, you know, so really, if you're trying to make a session IPA, the biggest problem that you're going to have is always how do you focus the hop character? Right. Uh, you know, because we always think of like an IPA as being very bitter. But of course, with a session IPA or a pale ale, you don't exactly have a, t- a lot of room for a ton of bitterness. And so for me, it's all much more about the late kettle and whirlpooling type stuff. Uh, particularly if you want enough hop oil to get in there. Uh, you might just skip all the kettle additions to start with and just focus on a hot Whirlpool. I know I you like... I know, yeah. I know.
0: It's It's got to have some kettle addition for bitterness. Um, I, I wanted to address that. Tried mashing hotter to get a little bit more yeah. sweetness in body. You're going to have to mash a whole heck of a lot higher. Most modern malts are so hot diastatically that changing the mash temperature a few degrees is not gonna really make any difference whatsoever. Uh, if you want more sweetness and body, you're better off adding something like crystal or carapils or something like that to get it uh, because just changing mash temp is not gonna do it for you.
1: Yeah, or even changing the style of base malt that you're using, you yeah. know uh using something that's more characterful but yeah malt these days is so hot that i mean it converts when you just stare at it funny
0: yeah right <laughs> so so that's not going to do a lot for you uh I tried cryo hops to make the hops shine and pop i, I wonder how I mean, he doesn't really say how that worked but boy that really works for me the other thing well, i mean don't
1: don't you use just i mean like when you're doing your ipas you're a ton of cryo these days aren't you
0: well yeah, but the other the other thing too is the dry hopping technique. Uh you know, sure. I I have gone to uh a short cold dry hop. Uh I I cold crash my beer down to 35, let it sit there for a few days until it uh, clears up, then drop my dry hops in for 48 to 72 hours. No longer than that for sure. If you're dry hopping at room temp for five days or a week or something like that, you are really not going to be getting the best out of your dry hops.
1: Yeah, and, and I mean, I don't necessarily always go cold. Uh, so uh, uh, for people who haven't listened to us talk about this before, uh, there's been a couple of studies that are out there. Uh, cold, uh, cold dry hopping favors the extraction of uh, linalool. Um, as a compound. Uh, but really, I think the primary thing to take away is the shorter dry hop times. I haven't really talked to a professional IPA brewer, like people who make IPAs that I respect. Uh, I haven't really talked to one that I can think of in the past couple of years who dry hops for any longer than three days. Yeah. Uh, and so you might see some of a double dry hopping, but uh, I think the biggest thing about it is, and it does apply here to the session IPA, is when you do that shorter dry hop time, you actually get a better hop expression without the carry on bitter and astringent tannin type things that you get uh, from a longer dry hop.
0: Right. After, after uh, say three days, the hops are going to start reabsorbing all the oils that they've put into your beer. And what's going to be left behind is just polyphenols. That is not what you want in there at all.
1: Yeah. And actually to, it is funny that Stephen, you're talking about this. One of the things I'm playing around with right now Is Yakima Valley Hops has now released homebrew sized bottles of the Incognito product, which is basically a hop sludge. So, not quite a cryo, not quite anything like that, but you know, flowable hop product is how they refer to it. Uh, And the session IPA that I'm really calling an American bitter because it's not really a session IPA, it's all, you know, no kettle additions just to irritate Denny all whirlpool of one bottle of the incognito uh citra just to play
0: yeah well you can make your beer however you want <laughs> you
1: know, that's the beauty of all this well I, I, I hope that helped and uh by the way if you guys have any uh, follow-on questions and whatnot either ask them in the ask a question or drop them in chat and then denny and i can try and work that into our answers as well
2: Yep. cool All right, um, let's see, next question about OG here. Uh, For a recently brewed imperial stout, I should have had an OG of 1120. Although I added rice hulls and stirred several times in the first 10 minutes of the mash, my OG was 1084, even with a reduced sparge. Why do you think I failed to hit my projected gravity?
0: The most common reason is that uh, when you make a big beer, uh, your efficiency goes down. Uh, and, I mean, if anything, you're going to want to sparge more, not less, you know. Uh, and boil longer. And boil longer. But the thing, the real thing to do is figure out what your efficiency goes down to when you make a really big beer and just compensate for that by adding more grain.
1: Yeah, I haven't done done that calculation yet on the G40. I know. Uh, no, I haven't either. Right. But, like, I know when I was doing just yield mash ton with a toilet braid. Uh, a la Denny, uh, years ago, like where my normal efficiency would be somewhere like around 72% or 75%. If I was going for a really big beard, that efficiency would drop down closer to like 50 55 sometimes.
0: Exactly. Same thing for me. Um, and so that's part
1: one. You're always going to lose efficiency with those bigger mashes. Uh, the, uh, the other thing I would also look at is double check all the water volumes. Because the, the big thing, and I know there's a question later on about uh, missing OGs as well. Uh, almost always, whenever people miss their OGs on a system, it comes down to one of two things. Either you your crush is poor, uh, which I know the other question says that their, their crush wasn't poor. Uh, either your crush is poor, which is by far and away the top and most common answer. Uh, or the other one is that your water volumes are off or you're losing water somewhere in the system that's carrying sugar with it. Or you Sorry. haven't
0: properly calculated the efficiency of your system. Well, yeah. You, you know, um, I, I see that all the time. People like see a recipe in a book and they just brew it exactly as it is. And they totally miss their OG. And it's because they haven't realized that every single recipe needs to be adjusted to what your system does. Uh, so, you know, that those those are the three things to look at right there.
2: And actually Eric just mentioned here on the side, and I was gonna do a follow up anyway, what, what is your recommendation if adding more grain isn't a possibility because you have something like a G thirty where you know limited mm-hmm. um space? It would doing two mashes uh do it or a smaller
0: amount, smaller batch size, yeah, I guess. I would I would go for a smaller batch myself. Yeah.
2: Yeah,
1: I mean, you could do a reiterated mash type thing, which is that that whole thing of like, you know, either or either do a double mash or you know do the mash sparging through the through the second mash. But uh, also the other answer is extract.
0: Yeah, extract is yeah. good. Uh, extract is really good when when you do it. And I've actually, you know, I've talked to uh, Sam at Grainfather about this too, and he he does uh, recommend a reiterated mash for a really big beer. Personally, that's more work than I want to do, so I would go the extract route.
1: Sure. Yeah, and just to give you guys an idea, I mean, like, so one of the biggest beers that I make uh, regularly, yeah, you don't have. It, there's nothing noble about being too purest for extract.
0: Yeah, uh, really, Eric, you're, you're just screwing yourself, buddy.
1: Yeah. Uh, you're making you're, make, you're making yourself more work in in your hobby. And in a, um, in a
0: big beer, you will never know that there is extract in it. Yeah.
1: Uh, now, and by the way, just to give you guys a lesson in terms of like how the uh, extract drops. Uh, so the system. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Thank you for saying that you're kidding. Uh, to give you an idea of how, like how the extract drops, the, the biggest beer I do on the regular is a beer called Falcon's Claws, which is a homage to use Denny's preferred term. Uh, to Sammy Claus, which is a big, massive Swiss, now Austrian lager, uh, 14.1%. And in order to get that thing to land at its original gravity of 1140, uh, one that requires a very long boil, uh, about three hours, but it also requires for the equivalents on, um, on a five-gallon uh, batch size, it's about 25 pounds of malt. And... Also, I always keep sugar and extract on hand. Uh, But if I were trying to do something at a much much lower gravity, I'd be using a much, much smaller amount, even just by ratio. So just keep in mind, going big is always problematic, and extract is your friend.
2: Yeah. Drew, do you go as big as you can with grains and then supplement with extract, or do you look at a percent of extract to try to get gravity points out of this percent? or
1: yeah, I mean, I I, I usually do uh, just for the reason of if I can get the sugar from the grain, then I don't have to yeah. add it from extract. I give myself a little bit more leeway in terms of like getting it correct. Uh, the extract really is there to serve as a stopgap. Uh, Luis is asking about uh, what about uh, adding natural sugar? Uh, sure, but you have to remember that with sugar, you're going to undercut some of your 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 apparent body. Uh, which actually, if you're going big, is not always a bad
0: thing. It depends on how much sugar you're going to add also. But uh, I would say that it's a a viable thing to do. You just want to keep in in mind the effect that it will have on the body of the beer and make sure that you don't add too much sugar or maybe even go to extract at that point.
1: Yeah, although, again, given the number of these, uh, particularly now in this day and age of sort of the mega stout and the pastry stout setup, um, I've seen a number of these uh, pastry style stouts that will start their gravities up around that 1120, 1140 range, and they finish fermenting at 1050. Mm. Uh, and it's fine. It tastes fine. But at the same time, me, I, I prefer drier. So shorter is not necessarily a bad thing there either.
2: Okay, and um, just to see if there's any other things to add, I'm going to jump down to Brian's question, similar question talking about New England IPAs, doubles and triples. Mm-hmm. Um, I never seemed to hit my original gravity. I have to cheat to raise it. I tried grinding my grains more precisely, stirring the mash more. Um, any other secrets that we didn't just touch on there?
0: Nope. Uh,
1: well, the only other thing I would think about is if he's doing a New England IPA, if there are any adjuncts in there uh i mean they don't necessarily have to be in new england ipa but a lot of the older school recipes do carry it and so be be careful about that i know a lot of people out there will also say oh well you got to check your ph and you got to worry about this that and the other Uh, generally generally unless your ph is really wackadoo
0: way off yeah
1: and you're really trying or you're really trying to squeeze every last freaking gram of sugar you can out of the grain uh, your, your pH is, 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 is going to have more of a flavor impact than than extract efficiency impact.
0: Yeah, yeah, right.
2: Sure. Since he mentions um, grinding grains, though, and I know you guys like the grain father and, you know, the brew in a um, bag-ish type of, you know, all-in-one systems. Um, do, you grain, uh, do you grind um, as fine as you can when going for these big beers? I mean, I know there's somewhat still the stock sparge, but...
0: I, I bought I bought my mill uh JSP adjustable maybe 20 years ago or something like that and I set the gap as tight as it would go and that worked great with my cooler system and I have never changed it it's still like that for my grandfather uh my uh, my saying is crush till you're scared
1: And me being uh, being the gadget guy that I am, uh, I decided to uh, go ahead and I got myself a a three-roller mill, a a monster three-roller. And with that thing, the advantage that I do have with this I like is, yeah, I can crush until I'm scared. And I kind of keep the the hulls a little more intact so I'm not as terrified.
0: Yeah, I mean, I... Obviously, my holes are staying intact enough because I have never had a stuck runoff on any system that I've brewed on using that crush.
1: Uh, There's a a chat question in there. Uh, What's the latest on gap and beer not work clarity? Um, You know, I haven't seen anything recently. Have you? Uh,
0: No, I don't know why there would be any relationship whatsoever.
1: Well, I would I would assume there the, the, maybe the worries about uh, either uh, tannins uh, tannins or lipid release. So we'd have to take a look. How, um, how
0: lipid release? That doesn't make any sense.
1: No, oh, but neither, neither is me being in my brewery.
0: Look, uh, The is Tannin, yeah, tannins are are dependent upon uh, pH, pH. Not, yep. not not crush or temperature or any of those kinds of things. So. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, so the latest thinking on Crush as opposed to beer clarity is that I haven't heard about it, but there's no, uh, there's no correlation.
1: Although if you have something that you want us to follow up on, uh, I would, uh, I would say, you know, drop us an email at podcast at experimentalbrew.com and tell us what you're thinking and we'll, I'll take a look.
0: Yeah. Um, and, the, and there's... The- what would you say on, uh, on like moisturing the grain? A lot of people like kind of like wet the grain a little bit before crushing. Uh, I've tried it, made a huge mess on my mill, and I didn't see any advantage to it whatsoever. A few, the only reason I can see would be uh, to uh, keep the keep the dust down somewhat. Uh, but I've I've had a lot of discussions on online with people who do this. And most of them say, you know, it really doesn't make that big a difference.
1: Yeah, and that's you know, the malt, malt conditioning. And I know that the theoretical reason for doing it is, you know, just like we were talking about before, like preserving husk integrity. You know, the idea is it makes the, the husk material more pliable.
0: So I, I, know, I know that Sierra Nevada and a number of big breweries do it, but they're big breweries and we're home brewers and I have not found any advantage to it myself.
1: Okay. Things things change at our scale. We All have right. advantages and disadvantages.
2: Um, here, I'm going to jump around here a little more since we're talking about high ABV brewing here. Uh, when bottling a high alcohol imperial stout, uh, what is the best way to assure it re-ferments in the bottle so you don't end up with flat beer? Should uh, I be using bottling yeast or are there other things one can do?
0: Uh, there's always prayer. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Uh, yeah, I, I I would, I would say bottling yeast is the way to go. If you're really concerned about it, uh, you know, I've done that. I mean, I I used to make a, a yearly batch of barley wine with a friend and we would almost always use bottling yeast. And one year we just spaced out, believe it or not, we'd been drinking and kind of forgot about it. Uh,
1: are you, are you sure you weren't also partaking of what the the beer's namesake is?
0: Well, that too maybe, um, but you know, um, it just it, it carbonated just fine, just the same. So I would say you want to be sure, right? If you spend a lot of time making making a big beer and a lot of uh, money and from the ingredients and stuff like that, um, then yeah, you want to you want to be sure. So add some vital yeast. Eric here says CBC. Yeast works wonderful. I haven't ever found a yeast that didn't work great for that. I mean I yeah, generally right. use just O five or S O four or something like that. So right. yeah. but to,
1: to Eric's point, the C B C one is I mean, that's literally what it's meant for, right? Yeah, you know, that's that's its skill skill set.
0: But if you can't if you can't source it, you're ready to bottle, you don't have it around, use any dry yeast. You really are not gonna know the difference. Right.
1: I will also throw in my my recollections on what on dumb experiments I've done. Uh, I am a big fan of the the idea that uh, yeast vitality gives a lot of sins, and that also is very true with the bottling and the rebottling of high gravity uh, beers, and um, When I used to do on the regular, I would do those uh, Belgian champagne beers, my brute beers. I would grow up a really incredibly healthy colony of yeast, use that to do the fermentation. And then remember that whole beer was going through a not only aging time in the carboy, but then also aging time in the bottles and was supposed to be up at real high volumes of pressure. Right. A lot of things are like super stressful on yeast. We because we always started with very vital and healthy yeast. We never had to repitch, even though we were really, uh, you know, new yeast into the bottle. Even though we were doing something that was the very definition of stupidly suicidal for yeast. Yeah. Um. So again, I would always say, start with high vitality, healthy yeast, and you'll forgive yourself a lot of sins down the line. But dry yeast is actually a really good a good backup plan.
2: Yep. Yeah. All right. Let's see, next question from Eric. Uh, lager and fermentation question. I usually wait until my gravity is about five to six points above uh, final gravity until I raise my temperature for a diacetyl rest uh, to 18 Celsius. I read that some people wait until only 50% attenuation for raising the temperature. I'm wondering uh, whether 50% attenuation until raising temp for a diacetyl rest uh, can lead more off flavors. Any thoughts on this and when it should be done
1: i would say it depends on the yeast strain.
0: yeah well yeah most yeast most lager yeast strains can ferment warm with very little problem uh, especially all the the popular ones like you know the 3470 the diamond lager uh, i think i've even fermented 21 why well, use 2124 fairly warm so given all that it doesn't really make a lot of difference when you start raising the temp. Uh I tend to wait longer to do it. Uh although I do it I do it more by time, but that's just due to experience. I know that after about five or six days, seven maybe, uh my my loggers are gonna be pretty much down to close to F G. So I just start raising the temperature then while well, again I don't start raising the temperature. I raise it all in one step, you know, Um, which again is not exactly what the official logger theory tells you to do, but it works for me. So that's what I do.
1: Um, If you haven't guessed, Denny is not actually allowed in Germany. There's a picture of him at the border for crimes against beer.
0: (laughs) Um,
1: I will say that, I mean, Actually, in general, so the whole diastole, diacetyl rust uh, thing. Um, I think a lot of brewers, again, it's yeast, yeast strain dependent. I think a lot of brewers actually overplay the importance of it, mm-hmm. unless you're using something like, say, one of the Munich strains or the Pilsner or Kell strain, for instance, which both of those will throw a fair amount of diastole to begin with. Um, again, healthy yeast forgives a lot of crimes. Correct yeast strain choice will also forgive a lot of things. I have generally found that outside of those very small subset of strains that are known to throw diastyl, a, di- a diastyl rest is really good for making sure that your fermentation finishes, not necessarily right. doing a lot of cleanup. Now, exactly. having said that, the whole idea about like, hey, you know, 50% attenuation versus, you know, 25% attenuation or almost done if you go and you look and you see like some of the things that people have done out there, like uh, the whole uh, Narzis fermentation, the fast fermentation schedules, you'll see that people are playing around a lot with exactly when to raise temperatures up. Right. So that whole, uh, the modified tasty schedule that that he always used to do in order to do his loggers. Yeah. I mean, it calls you, it calls for you stepping up your, your temperatures by five degrees. Like when you hit 50 degrees, uh, 50% attenuation (laughs) and then continuing to come up until like, within a very short period of time, you're up in the mid 60s, effectively doing a diastole rest while wrapping up your primary fermentation and then allowing you to turn around and crash the beer and get, get going. So, again, like I said, outside of certain strains, I find the diastole rest concerns are largely overblown. Uh,
0: yeah, if you pitch a sufficient amount of healthy yeast, that's healthy yeast, and you give it time to work, you will pretty much never need a diastole but, rest.
1: Unless again, it's like one of the Municher strains or Pilsner, or well, Kel, okay, which always okay, throws diastol. even
0: those I've had you know pretty good luck with, but yeah, I mean, a diacetyl rest is pretty much an invention of commercial brewey trying to try and get a beer beard quickly. What the heck is that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's Dean, the deathologist
0: getting <laughs> okay. off now quiet uh, or something. So, anyway, you know, I mean, I used to use y Yeast 2206 a lot because it's a great all round lager strain, and it never throws diacetyl. So, I I guess the keys are picking the right strain of yeast, pitching plenty of it, and making sure it's healthy when you pitch it, going back to Drew's point about healthy yeast. And if you do that, you might not need a diacetyl rest, and it's not going to make a lot of difference when you do it.
2: All right. Um next question. We've got back to back questions on Brett here. First off, nope. let's assume I pitch a vial of Brett, either co-pitched or by its own. Uh does Brett always ferment down to one zero 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 or just below? Um, any mentions no. I bought my beer.
1: No, and particularly not on its own. Uh because a lot of a lot of times you have to remember that uh Brett tends to have issues with fermenting maltose all on its own. So, uh, no, it's not necessarily guaranteed that Brett's gonna bring your, your beer all the way down to zero.
0: But, generally, I mean, I, you have a lot more experience with Brett than I do, but generally, uh, it seems like most people don't pitch the Brett until the beer is pretty much fermented out on its own with a regular sack strain.
1: Depends, depends upon okay. what your goals are. Uh, okay. So, uh, as as our friend here says, yeah, you know, co-pitched or by its uh, by itself. So Brett, uh, Brett is kind of funny because it seems that at least with the limited amount of studies that have been done on it, uh, and I know on Milk the Funk they talked about whether or not it was done with uh, the tois strain. I think it was Brett, but uh, Brett pitched as a primary fermentation strain tends to be very clean, at least in the ferments I've had with it. Um, Brett, when co-pitched particularly co pitch early also tends to be cleaner. But if you co-pitch it later, that's when you start to get a, a lot of the kind of the classic Brett characteristics that we talk about, the, you know, the hay, the, uh, the farmhouse funk, the, you know, horse dung, whatever, you know, take it, take your pick for your favorite way of saying this smells like a barn. Um, that tends to come more when you're, when it's as like a secondary sort of addition. So I would not assume that Brett is going to take your beer down to zero or below. Just because that's not that's not always been the case in my my experience, but yeah, you do still need to with the Brett because some of the Brett's do produce various uh, enzymes. You do want to keep an eye on it, and make sure that's steady before you go bottling.
2: Okay, and then a second question on the subject: Is it possible to make a Brett beer in three to four weeks as far as fermentation is concerned?
1: Yeah, particularly if you're using it as the primary stern. Okay. Uh, I mean, it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Again, I know Brett. Brett makes a lot of people get scared, and a lot of people think Brett needs a lot of time, but in reality, just start playing around with your favorite strain, and you'll you'll quickly learn that it uh it uh yeah you know, it doesn't behave all that different than regular yeast.
0: Yeah, that's true. I've I've discovered that even with my limited use. Yep.
2: Okay. Uh, next question from Kevin. I often brew big beers and use a yeast cake from a previous batch, but sometimes I can't get it brewed ahead of time. So instead of pitching two packets of dry yeast, I thought I'd make a starter. However, once I thought I heard you on the podcast say don't make a starter from dry yeast, uh, you guys want to talk about why you shouldn't make a starter with dry yeast? Yeah, um, because
0: it's you get better performance from the yeast by not making a starter, uh, right? When when yeast is, when dry yeast is produced, the growth is stopped during the sterol production phase. So it's it's loaded with sterols. Sterols are these fatty acids that keep the cell walls flexible to make it easier for them to bud and uh, and reproduce and, and stuff. You want the yeast to be using those sterols in your wort not in the starter uh if if you make i mean what what's going on here is that you're trading cell count for yeast health and the conclusion i've come to after all these years is that yeast health is a lot lot more important than the number of cells you put in there Uh, on our website experimentalbrew.com there's a great paper written by a friend of ours and it's titled something like uh, yeast is like a nuclear weapon and that's because once you get that yeast into your wort the cells grow and expand so quickly that within a few hours you'll have as many cells as you would have if you had made a starter um in in my in my thinking i would always rather pitch two packs of dry yeast as opposed to making a starter with dry yeast oh yeah
1: there you go. And yeah, I mean, to me, the, the other thing you have to keep in mind is that, I mean, the amount of cells that you already have with that dry yeast packet, you'd have to make really large starters in order to really encourage enough growth to make it make it worthwhile. Well. So, I wouldn't do that anyway. Uh, there's a qu- follow-up question from Greg saying, "Do you hi- hydrate dry yeast or dump it in dry?" Well, for years, everybody, all the yeast manufacturers used to say, "Oh no, you must rehydrate the dry yeast." Uh, yeah, it turns out they were borrowing their instructions from the wine side of the house. Yep. uh and and now they all pretty much say no
0: yeah I, I, talked to, I talked to a scientist at uh, lawmand about this uh uh both about the starter thing and uh, and about what uh, drew was saying about rehydrating and that's exactly what he told me is that we always told people we started in the wine yeast business and we told them that because the wine is you know so much higher gravity and everything we wanted to and
1: much lower pH
0: and much lower pH. Right. Uh, but he said, I I mean, his, his words to me were, I don't know why we're telling people to do that with beer. So, you know, there you go. Uh, I, I have not rehydrated yeast, dry yeast in over 20 years. And, you know, if I thought that it would make a difference, I would do it, but I never found that it did. Uh, the only thing that made a difference was, uh, um, that, People sometimes rehydrate it in water that's too hot and kill it. So, you know, that's that's that would be one of the downsides.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's it, well, and also not to mention the fact that it's just another opportunity for you to not only screw something up by heat, but also just another opportunity for you to potentially contaminate things. So, just put open that pack and dump it in.
2: Yep. Okay. Um, another quick yeast question here. Uh, different manufacturers suggest different methods pre-pitch. Imperial says leave it in the fridge until you pitch and y yeast to warm up. Any idea why and whether it matters?
1: I would assume that's probably because y yeast is expecting you to have some sort of growth in the packet, like you know with the whole smack thing and show like hey yeah, you know, the yeast is active.
0: That's that's just proofing that there's re- no, no, no so little cell growth it doesn't really matter. Um yep. What what I go on, it's kind of the same thing as I was saying about the dry yeast. You don't want that yeast active until it goes into your wort. People used to say, oh, there's temperature shock, you know. And that is true to some degree if you put warmer yeast into colder wort. But putting colder yeast into warmer wort is really a really good thing.
1: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I also tend to leave my yeast in the fridge because I'm a dummy. And, um, if I, if I, I will at some point do this, uh, that, uh, that I would walk out and I would leave the yeast somewhere way too warm, or I'd leave the yeast on the counter overnight or for multiple nights. Uh, because I was like, Oh, I'm going to go brew. Oh, wait, no, I got to go wash the dogs. Um,
0: so, so I see a comment here from Dirk about uh, oxygenating dry yeast Right. Nope. No, you don't. And this go, again, this goes back to the way the yeast is produced and you've you got to think about why you oxygenate. Right. And a lot of people don't know or don't understand what the purpose of oxygenating or aerating is. Right. That is because the yeast uses the oxygen to synthesize sterols that we talked about are, that are, help the yeast uh, grow. Right. Because dry yeast is just like loaded with sterols when it's produced, oxygenating is not going to do any good whatsoever. I mean, I don't think it will hurt anything, but you're wasting your time and your oxygen because you're not running another
1: pathway for contamination.
0: Yeah, that's true. You're not adding anything that the yeast doesn't already have.
2: Okay. Next question here. Um, I like to bottle condition my homebrew. I choose more flocculent yeast strains. I've never cold crashed before, but I have the capacity to do so now. What do I need to know or do um, regarding bottle conditioning after cold crashing?
0: Nothing. Nothing. There's still going to be plenty of yeast there yeah. uh, for bottling after you cold crash. Uh, you know, if you, got out, if you cold crashed and then took a little sample of your wort and looked at it under a microscope, it would just be loaded with yeast cells. Uh, so I wouldn't worry about it. Well,
1: I was going to say, Sierra Nevada is still bottle condition, aren't they? The...
0: Partially. What they do yeah. is that they, they put some yeast in the bottles, actually, even in the kegs, but then they also force carbonate.
1: Right. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, you got to remember that in order to do the carbonation, you need relatively little yeast. And as as the blog post that we uh, that we dropped the URL to says, uh, yeast are nuclear weapons, they're way hardier than we give them credit for.
2: Yeah. Danny, real quick, following up, what's the purpose of putting the yeast in and force carbonating?
0: You know, I think just because they like to. <laughs> I,
2: it's a good story.
0: They didn't. They didn't really get real specific about why they do it. Maybe they feel like the yeast helps scavenge some oxygen and keeps their beer fresher longer. Uh, so um, you know, it just, it, it, it just. Doesn't I don't I mean Sierra Nevada is very very particular about their beer. They go to great lengths. They, you know, have refrigerator trucks that have like you know GPS tracking on them so they can tell where every truck full of beer is at any given moment. So it's just it's just one of those things they like to do. That uh, was well, just
1: a scary measure.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let me get back to this uh, follow-up. Just bring it up to room temperature before bottling. Uh, <laughs> you can if you want, but you don't have to. You just, what you need to do is just take into account the highest temperature the beer has reached, right? Uh, Because as beer ferments, CO2 goes into solution in the beer. The higher the temperature gets though, the more of that CO2 comes out of solution. So when you bottle, you need to account for whatever CO2 is left in solution in the beer so use a priming calculator and r- put in the highest temperature that the beer reaches during fermentation and you should be in pretty good shape and you don't need to worry about warming it up before you bottle either that
1: okay. or uh, either that or forced
2: carbonate. um uh, next question <laughs> co2 shortages are filtering down to home brewers like me uh <laughs> any co2 <laughs> conservation tips
1: Take condition.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean that's that's why, Kurt. I'm curious. Have you actually experienced this? Have you tried to get CO2 and not been able to do it? Because I keep hearing about this all the time, all over the internet, and it turns out that everybody's talking about it is referring to the large commercial breweries, and and they are having trouble getting CO2 in the quantities they need. But I mean, all the time things I have never had any trouble getting a CO2 tank filled. And I have yet to talk to anybody that actually has had trouble getting a CO2 tank filled for a homebrew scale. So I'm I'm curious if this is something you've actually experienced or if this is just something you're worried about because it's what they're. T- oh, yes. Today, welding shop only selling to contracts and medical. Wow. Cool. Well, sorry to hear that, man. Uh you know, if you're kegging, uh, you can uh, keg condition. Yeah, spending valve is good, too. You can do that. Uh, you know, <laughs> spending yeah, I valve. Mean, I
1: like yeah. that, <laughs> <laughs> valve might actually be more uh, more correct for the amount of equipment that you need in order to make sure it works uh, and the money you have to spend. But um, I would also say, yeah, keg condition. If you're really having problems with the amount of CO2 then or getting your hands on CO2, Keg conditioning is one thing that you can do. Obviously, there's nothing that stops you from going back to bottles, except for the fact that they're a pain in the fatunkas. Um But the other thing is, I've I've always been uh, a big advocate for doing CO2 purges and doing complete CO2 purges of kegs because I think it allows it allows the beer to hang around longer. Uh, one, if you are keg conditioning, that becomes less critical because you get the the oxygen pickup effects ish uh, from the keg conditioning and the yeast. But the other thing is I would recommend people stop doing the stupid way of doing uh, keg, uh, keg purges mm-hmm. and like I always have, which is, you know, the whole, you know, fill it up, purge keg. Uh, fill it up, purge keg. Do that like seven times. Fill the keg with sanitizer. Push it out. Just do it at very low volume. Uh, yeah. And there you go. Uh, th- that, that's what I would suggest. Um, but, yeah, at a certain point in time, if you're really hard up for CO2 – do everything that you can to make it so that the only thing you're using CO2 for is the dispensing, because right. a, a a tank of CO2, even a even a little five pound cylinder, you know, at nominal CO2 rates or no- nominal pressure rates uh, for like a Cobra line or even just a small draft system, can last for a good long while. Also, be super freaking paranoid about all your connections. Shut the tank down every night. Disconnect right. things. You know, don't turn, don't have that valve open unless you're actually using it. Because I don't care how many times I have thought I have an airtight, you know, or gas tight CO2 system, only to come out and find out that I've lost CO2 and gone. Oh. I'm just very fortunate that I have a really good CO2 guy. So
0: yeah, those are those are good tips, Drew. Yep.
1: So All yeah, right. Kurt, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you got hit by that. But uh, the other thing, do go look for, go look and see if your area you've got anybody who does uh soda service because those guys will definitely have their hands on co2 and that's exactly who i get my my co2 from as well but
0: but they may only be selling to larger
1: accounts or something they they might but yeah i mean look at some point in time you just got to go keep asking people
2: yeah that's right that's right man homebrew is a good bartering tool (laughs) yeah man All right. um, These next two questions are pretty much the same, so I'm just going to ask the longer one here. Uh, What are advantages and disadvantages of pressure fermenting at um, normal lager or ale temperature, i.e. not higher temps to shorten fermentation, or allow uh, fermenting lagers at ale temps?
0: Oh, boy. Uh, This is something...
1: I'm just going to walk away for a while because I think Danny's going to be going for a little bit. (laughs)
0: Uh, No, no, I'm going to try and make this quick. Uh, Pressure fermentation is the trendy thing these days, isn't it? Uh, And people just kind of throw in some yeast and put some pressure on it and ferment and say, okay, that's it. We were in Australia speaking at their homebrew conference a few years ago, and uh, Chris White was also there. And he gave a presentation on uh, pressure fermentation using some data that he and John Blickman had, uh, had gathered from some experiments they've done. And pretty much the two conclusions were, yeah, it, it might work, but you have to match the yeast strain, the temperature, and the amount of pressure. You can't just take any old yeast at any old temperature under any old pressure and expect good results. What I got out of his whole talk and then speaking to him for a while about it afterwards was it's more finicky than I want to screw around with. Um I don't know I mean I see people saying, Oh, the advantage is you can get a logger done in five days, you know. It's like, well fine, I don't need to get a logger done in five days. So at any rate, that's that's a very long winded way of saying I haven't done it and that's pretty much all I know about it. Yeah, I, I will say it's absolutely
1: amazing how much information you can get out of Dr. White if you ply him with salt and pepper squid and a pint of beer.
0: Oh, yeah. Several pints of beer.
1: Yeah. Um, but ha- having said that, yeah. I mean, I get the appeal of doing uh, of, you know, the promises of pressure fermentation, the idea that uh, not, not only just the time frame, right, but also the temperature correction. Like the fact that you can do a, a warmer, a warmer lager and in theory have it be lager-esque. Uh, but to that point from both of our experiences we've done uh w th- uh, 3470 you know at warm temperatures and by warm temperatures i mean like 65 yeah and exactly. they've come they've come out the other side being fairly loggerish. um now also i this is where i'll i'll throw throw my usual mantra in here which is that uh yeah pressure fermentation is not not my bag it's not Denny's bag um That does not mean that it's not your bag. Uh, If the, if the playing around with that sort of gear and that equipment is something that actually brings you joy. If playing around with the technique makes, makes you kind of excited to do it. uh, I would say, go, go and play with it. I mean, the the worst thing that happens is you spent money on a spunding valve. You spent money on, you know, maybe the right sort of yeast strain and you spent money on making a batch of beer if it's beer that you enjoy at the, at the end of the day, and it's a technique that you think is actually interesting to play around with. And look, I won't fault you for that. Cause I think trying yeah. something different is fun. Go for it. Yeah, yeah, right.
0: I mean, it's, it's a hobby, do whatever you want to do. And you know, especially if it's giving you the results that you want. I've been, let me see on March 19th, it will be 25 years that I've been home brewing. I, I should be on about batch 600 by then. Um, and you know i've I've become very pragmatic over that period of time uh, i don't like expending time and energy on stuff that isn't going to make better beer or a better experience for me making the beer and i don't I don't feel the need to do something just because it's going to be geeky and complicated uh, Generally, <laughs> I'm, to, I'm sure there are exceptions to that rule. But on the other hand, if you like geeky and, compli- and complicated and you're getting great results, pressure fermenting, go for it. If you're not pressure fermenting, though, don't feel like you've missed the boat and you're not one of the cool kids. Well, I guess well, I'm not one of the cool kids. So. Yep. Yeah,
2: you're you're been cool.
0: I mean,
1: uh, but, no, I mean, again, I think. I like learning techniques, so I've played with pressure fermentation, but I, at no point did I ever see, like, after learning learning the technique and trying it, did I ever see an advantage that made me go, this will be now part of my regular toolkit. It's, my swanning valve is still sitting in my toolbox, by the way. It's there just in case I need it, uh, but I haven't so far in about the, I think the, what, the last time I played around with it was nine years ago, eight years ago. So,
2: All right. Next question. uh, For loggers, do you recommend pitching two packets of dry lager yeast?
1: Not unless the gravity is super high.
2: What's super high? mean? A
1: 1080 plus. Oh, wow. Okay.
0: I, you know, I played around with this quite a bit. uh, Going between one pack and two packs on an average gravity, you know, say 1055-ish lager. Um, I can't tell a huge amount of difference. But because dry yeast is so inexpensive, relatively, um, I pretty much always do pitch two packs. And I've even gotten into that habit for ales, too. Is it really making a huge difference? I can't say because I've never done a split batch and to try it side by side. It's one of those things that makes me feel better. And I've if I've got that much yeast in my fridge, I'll pitch two. Uh, so do I recommend it? Yeah, I don't necessarily recommend it, but give it a try and see what you think.
1: Yeah, and so like to give you an idea, that Falcon's clause uh, that I talked about earlier, the one that starts at eleven forty or eleven twenty five to eleven forty, depending upon how well I actually nailed the mash the mash things. Uh that one gets like two packs of uh, uh was it the one forty three? Uh, uh I mean, but yeah.
0: 140, you mean one hundred eighty nine? Yeah, one
1: eighty nine. S one eighty nine. The, which is actually the right strain to use. Yeah. Uh,
0: right,
1: it, that's a, uh, a hardy yeast. But, yeah, no, th- that generally only gets uh, two packs per five gallons.
2: So. Hmm. Okay. Let's see. Uh, let's go back to when we were talking about missing the OG. You mentioned H2O amounts can be the culprit. Can you talk more about this, water ratios to grains, ratio of strike water to sparge water, et cetera?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, the problem is, I think a lot of people go and they use a mash calculator. You know, they use whatever their, you know, brew father, uh, brewer's friend, you know, or in the grandfather application like we use for the G40s. Uh, and they look at it and they say, it says, okay, mash with three and a half gallons of water and do four and a half gallons of water here for the sparge. Um, everything should come out the other side hunky dory. Uh, the thing you have to remember is, okay, so, Grain absorption is going to possibly be a little different from time to time based on your environment, temperature, humidity, the age of the grain, all that sort of fun stuff. Uh, So that's going to change the amount of water absorption you have there. Also, particularly, at least for me, as you're learning a new system, you have to realize that water hides in places. You don't always get every last drop out of everything. Or you could do what I did on my last batch of beer, which you'll hear about in the podcast tomorrow or Friday. Uh, I screwed up the, uh, the the amount of sparge water I put in, and that's very easy to do. And very few of us are actually using like actually correct measured amounts of water that are precisely on the level, right? I am, I am. Like, yeah, no, I mean, uh, what I mean by that is, I most of the time I'm going and I'm adding water in via via my pitcher, right? You know, that one gallon mark. Well, that's that's the gallon I use. Now, whether or not this is the same gallon that it's supposed to be, hmm, close enough. So. Particularly with ad hoc or home constructed systems, you'll find a lot of places where you have essentially what they call dead space and you'll get water trapped in those dead spaces, whether it's like under a um, under like a false bottom. If you're using a false bottom, which was part of the reason why using something like a toilet braid was such a great idea, was it eliminated a lot of dead space that you'd have. So, yeah, you get different grain, grain absorptions based on, you know, time of year, age of grain, phase of the moon. Uh, you have different needs of different equipment. And then also you just have the fact that not all of us are very precise about the amount of wire that we put in.
0: Yeah, right. And, and I am, uh, you know, I'm I'm OCD enough that, uh, that that's one of the things that I pay attention to.
1: Yeah, um, Denny's using nothing but lab uh, lab calibrated uh, flats to measure his water.
0: No, uh, And that doesn't that doesn't matter. As my, I mean, little bits of variations are not going to matter. My general rule of thumb is an, a, a normal mash, you know, not, not something that's going to be super high gravity, but, you know, mm-hmm. something maybe up to like 1080, something like that. Mash with whatever ratio feels good to you and, and works for your system. For me, that's usually somewhere in like a quart and two-thirds, quart and three-quarters a pound, and then sparred with enough, to get your boil volume and it's just that that easy uh used to be all these people talking about how the you know the liquor to grist ratio made a difference in the finished beer and stuff so for years i was religious okay this beer takes like one and a quarter quarts per pound this one takes one quart per pound this one takes one and a half i couldn't tell any freaking difference whatsoever uh you know so I, I tend to go heavier on um, the the mash water, you know, and try to get more out of the mash, because uh, there used to be this guy around named Kai Troister years ago, and he once said to me, the first word is the best word, and I thought, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's very so German. Yeah, isn't it? <laughs> so, I, you know, what I do is I go, I, I try to get a little bit more out of the mash than the sparge. But, you know, it it doesn't make a huge difference unless you're making a really big beer. And in that case, you, you don't want to go too heavy. I mean, I, I've gone as far as two quarts per pound for, like, say, an eleven, ten, eleven, twelve barley wine. Uh, And then to get your efficiency up, you can sparge more, more, but then you'll need to boil longer to get that down to uh, the volume that you're shooting for and the gravity that you're shooting for. But that's about the only place I've ever found it to make a difference. All
2: All right. right. Hey, we are um, about at the time that I promised you guys we'd take off, but I see two more questions in, and I actually have one myself. you guys uh-huh. have like, more minutes to stick around with yeah, these last three?
1: Cool. Yeah, um, I, got, I got 26 minutes before my dogs eat my ankles because I haven't fed them.
2: This shouldn't take that long. Um, Ken asks, has anyone experienced unavailability of the red Bernzomatic oxygen bottles? Is that a thing you guys have seen?
0: I, I haven't experienced it because I don't use them, but I've heard from people who have had trouble finding them. So I think that that's a real thing.
1: Yeah. Uh, and like Denny, uh, well, I mean the ox, whenever I do use oxygen, I'm actually using from a bigger tank that I have my hands on, which not everybody has their, their ability to get. Um, I would say if you're having problems with the, the burns o uh, oxygen bottles, this is where it's a good time to remember that aeration is still actually a thing. You can still, you know, do some low levels of aeration without oxygen. And also this is where having healthy vital yeast comes in really damn handy.
0: That's right.
1: Okay. Then I, I think that's become the theme for this, uh, this uh, chat.
2: Healthy vital yeast. It, it, uh, seems, so, it seems so obvious.
0: Yeah, yeah right.
2: <laughs> uh, let's see. I, this may be an inside joke that I had missed earlier, but what's the best condiments to serve with pork tenderloin?
0: I'm on the mango chutney bandwagon, man. I can't imagine much better than that for my taste.
1: Uh, I make a blueberry ginger salsa.
0: That would be nice too. That that sounds good. Something something with fruit for sure. Yes. So well,
1: something with fruit and something with spice. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. And let's see, I I have my own question that I've been wanting to ask you guys, hoping we'd finish questions before we uh, ran out of time. So, i got a friend who has a brewery, uh, a town away. So he, um, put in, uh, his oatmeal stout recipe in a bourbon barrel, saw a pellicle in it and doesn't want to introduce, you know, any of the bugs into his brewery. So he offered up to the homebrew club. Anyone who wants to come in and, you know, fill up a carboy or keg, feel free and do as you wish with it. So we got a sour stout and. If people want to differentiate so that we don't all end up with the exact same sour stout, what do you recommend I can do um, with it? I, I haven't had a lot of experience with sour stouts before, so I'm not sure if nibs or something can differentiate.
0: Uh, yeah, you might you might want to uh, pasteurize the word, You know, has it already been boiled?
1: Yeah, yeah, it was it was in barrels. It's already. Yeah, it, it's,
0: it's in the
2: barrel right now. We'll be getting it from the barrel. Yeah, so, so I, have say, I don't know exactly what to expect here.
0: So I would cocoa nibs is one way to go. Um, you know, you could you could try pasteurizing it so that anything you add to it isn't like fermented out by any sour bugs that are left in there. Um, Blueberry ginger. Uh,
1: that, that's what the back, back with the pork tenderloin,
0: uh, yeah, yeah, I know. Um, the pork tenderloin
1: question. Yeah. You, you know, the, the funniest one that I can think of is based on one of my experiences way in the past, uh, way, way long ago, back when I was still living in a bachelor uh, apartment, I made a, what was supposed to be a historical porter. And it was like a third Amber, third pale and third, uh, Frankfurt. Uh, but the, the whole idea was that it was, it, you know, it was, it was the, the the proper historical way of making a porter. And it came out terrible, awful, because I didn't realize that modern brown malt is different than historical brown malt because I was a dummy. And the thing about that beer was it was both astringent and sour. And Ooh. oh, yeah, wonderful. Right uh, now, of course, being the uh, cheap Scots, Irish, New English bastard that I am. I was not going to sacrifice that beer uh because that was money and time. And you know what? It, it, like I put I put cocoa nibs into it. And then I did the classical thing that I that I had done a lot, which is I got lazy and I forgot to transfer the beer. Oh. And sat on the cocoa nibs for about two weeks, which was twice the amount of time that I was expecting it to. So actually before before I did the cocoa nibs, it wasn't astringent, it was just sour. Uh, and then after I did the cocoa nibs, it became astringent. So the thing I did in order to actually make it, you know, like sing and actually become a beer that people wanted to drink. is I went down to my corner liquor store and I grabbed the cheapest bottle of Rasmataz raspberry liqueur I could find.
0: There you go. I was going to say raspberry.
1: Mm. Dump that thing into the keg, rack the beer on top of it, shook it up, carbonated it. And you know what? It was a dessert. So the other,
0: thing, the other thing I would suggest along the same lines, coconut rum. Yep. Ooh. Well,
1: and I think you and I are thinking the same way. A little bit of booze to kind of help undercut a, a lot of things, and then the sweetness from those sweet boozes yeah. to sort of help ameliorate some of the sourness, while still allowing somewhere that sour character to play in.
0: I think I think coconut rum with that with that stout could could be something special.
2: Mm-hmm. All right. I like the way you think because coconut crossed my mind and I was, you know, I was talking with Kiev about it and he was suggesting that coconut and sour may not go good together, which I, I just so, don't have a ton of experience in like, this. Oh. Do, 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 a, do a so yeah. it.
1: Do it. Do it. Do Yeah, that's
2: sour.
0: I mean, and and do it. Do it in a glass first to figure out yep. like how much sure. to add. Right. Do that. Yeah. With with different different measured amounts and to to figure out how much to add, I'll bet you that's gonna work, man. Thank me later. Yeah, or 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 you can
1: also just do the the cheap and dumb method that I did, which was like I have one bottle of beer or I have one bottle of booze. I got
2: one keg. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think we'll do the bench trials. I I, I appreciate that input because uh, those are those are probably better than what I would have done otherwise. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Um. I, yeah, we are we're past time here. Again, apologies for you know starting this thing late. That was totally my fault. Um but I, I really appreciate you guys joining us. Uh you know, it's been a pleasure working with you guys for what's it, three or four years now you guys have been doing techniques? Uh yeah, well, yeah. probably. Yeah, and columns have hit the deadline and come in on time every issue, I think. Or, oh, no, uh, not four even. Four years streak is what I hear. Yeah. It.
0: That, that's, that's kind That's kind of you to say it, but it ain't true. <laughs> yeah. uh,
2: actually, actually, Dave just texted me asking where your column is.
1: Um, <laughs> yeah, t- tell Dave, I'll get it to him later. <laughs>
2: All right. Hey, th- thank you both. I really do appreciate it. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. Um, and I believe we have uh, another one of our department authors lined up for next month, although waiting for a confirmation from <laughs> Gordon. So uh, join us, uh, check back on the home page. We'll be announcing the time and uh, the same place here. And, you- and I did see a question. How do you watch a replay? This same link uh, after we cut this live session off, come back here and you can watch the replay if, if you so desire. Cool. With that, we're going to end broadcast. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, everybody. Peace.
0: Appreciate it. Bye-bye. We'll be right back after these messages. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family owned business of husband and wife veterans. So when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The ultimate all-in-one electric homebrewing system is here. The new Grainfather G40 can produce up to 11 gallons of beer and features all the latest advancements in homebrewing technology, including wireless control so you can monitor your brew day from the Grainfather app. With an innovative new grain basket design that improves wort flow, reaching mash efficiencies of 75% or more is easy. The 3,300-watt heating element brings your wort to a boil quickly without any scorching, and the large hop plate filter guarantees that no unwanted grain matter or hop tube reaches your fermenter. Every G40 comes standard with a high powered built in pump that can handle temperatures over 200 degrees Fahrenheit and a full three year warranty that guarantees that you will be able to keep on brewing no matter what. The new Grandfather G40 is available now at your favorite homebrew retailer or online at grandfather.com. you go thanks to the good folks at brew your own magazine for uh, letting us use the audio from that uh, chat and thanks again for asking us to do it uh hopefully we uh, answered some of the questions there and hopefully you guys listening now uh that was relevant to you and answered some of your questions too or at least you enjoyed listening to us be fools
1: Well, and if you want to actually catch up on other chats, because BYO doesn't just do this with us, but they do it with other people that you might be interested in hearing from, you can subscribe to Brew Your Own Magazine, and you'll get access to – I think they do it monthly, right? I think Um, so. Yeah, so monthly online chats. It's through Crowdcast.io, which is everybody's favorite platform for conferences and whatnot. And you can go and – Ask questions, listen to speakers talk, and just get even more information than just from us two goofballs.
0: (laughs) Yeah, really, maybe from some people who really know something. Anyway, I think it's time for us to get out of here. So, uh, thank you all for listening to Experimental Brewing. You can catch up on our latest writings and adventures by going to our website, experimentalbrew.com. Don't forget, you can follow us on Twitter, where we're at expbrewing. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. Drew hangs out on the Slack Homebrewing channel and the Homebrewing subreddit. You can find me at the AHA Forum. I hang around Facebook a lot. Uh, I'm on the Brews Brothers Forum. I'm on the uh, Beer Garden. At the brew house. You're everywhere, man. Yeah, right. I just kind of bounce around because I'm bored. If you want to ask us a question, suggest topics, recipes, experiments, or even just rant and rave, you can email us at podcast at experimentalbrew.com. Or if you want to get a hold of each one of us individually, I'm Denny at experimentalbrew.com, and he's Drew at experimentalbrew.com. And you can leave us a voicemail or shoot us a text at 626 765 one 765 1253 So, until next time, remember to brew experimentally. Or brew wacky.
1: And we'll see you on the next episode of Experimental Brewing.